Hi, this is Pastor James Strickland, and you are listening to our sermon cast for Homeland Park Baptist Church. And so we continue in our look at our broad outline of Revelation today, and we are in Revelation 20. And as we left the book of Revelation in chapter 19, we saw a world that was falling apart. The Antichrist and the false prophet were both sent to the fiery lake of burning sulfur, which is hell. And Jesus Christ, whose name was called Faithful and True, he had returned to the earth in order to judge those who rejected him. And he rewarded those who embraced him. The world was stained red with the blood of those who thought they could stop Jesus' return with military might. And this morning, we begin to hear the rest of the story. So let's jump right in. And first, we see in verses 1 through 6 of Revelation 20, that Satan is bound for a thousand years. The scripture says, starting with verse 1, again, I'm reading from New Living Translation. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that old serpent, who is the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. Afterward, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and the people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for the proclaiming the word of God. They had worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They all came to life again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years had ended. But blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them the second death holds no power, but they will be priests of God and Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Boy, there's a lot to unpack in those few verses. First and foremost, I want to tell you that God and Satan are not equals. I find it amazing that Scripture tells us that an unnamed angel came to bind up Satan with chains. There's some type of of pecking order or some type of rank in heaven among the angels, but we know it wasn't God, it wasn't Jesus, it wasn't uh, Gabriel, it wasn't Michael the archangel. It was just an unnamed angel. It was just a guy, he said, hey, go chain up my dog, is what he did. So this angel brought the chain and chained up Satan. There was not some type of heavenly boxing match or UFC fight where God and Satan traded blows. It wasn't even a competition. Satan is not God's equal, regardless of what Satan and this world wants you to think. This is important because God sent this angel, this servant, to do a menial task that by anybody else's means would be to go out and do the chores. But in God's understanding, this was just another step to take in his marvelous plan. 
The world continues to have the false impression that Satan and God are equals. My friend, God has no equals. Satan tried to imprison Jesus in a tomb, but he couldn't. And here, God has no problem restraining Satan. The second thing we see in those verses is what do you think the main tool of Satan is? People think that Satan has all these great tools to work against us, but really, he only has a couple. We see them in Jesus' temptation on the mount in Matthew chapter 4. But what we see here is that Satan, his main choice of weapon is deception. And we see that all the way back in the garden. Satan cannot take God straight on. He cannot change the outcome of the world. All he can do is twist it to deceive people. When you think about it, the way God's Word tells us to act, to love God and to love others, and somehow it is getting twisted into what we see today. Deception defined is to cause someone to believe something that is not true, typically in order to gain some personal advantage. What is the most powerful defense against Satan and deception? Well, Jesus showed us himself, even in the wilderness when he was being tempted. The greatest weapon against temptation, the greatest weapon against deception. How can you keep from being deceived? By knowing the word of God. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, if you took uh, uh, some, play, some Monopoly play money and you went and put it on your deposit slip and gave it to the bank and said, you know what, I'd like for you to deposit this, they would laugh you out of the bank. But if you tried to get something that looked as close to the real thing, they may cash it because they were deceived. It almost looks right, but it's not. And my friends, today, if you and I are not in God's Word, we're going to see a lot of things that people say speak for God, that are God, that look like God, that have nothing to do with God, because we are being deceived by the evil one. Satan continues today to deceive. First Peter 5.8 puts it this way. It says, Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We also see in this passage that God's martyrs are rewarded. Where it said in verse 4, Then I saw the thrones and the people sitting on them had been given authority to judge. And those that were beheaded saw them as well. You see, these are those that God has redeemed. It will be believers like you and I that have been raptured before all of this happened. It will also be, we see specific attention given to what we call the tribulation saints. Those that were martyred during the great tribulation. Also, let's talk about the thousand years. Now, my friends, I will go ahead and tell you there are books and libraries filled with what I'm about to share with you. And in no way could I fully cover the thousand years in this 30-minute sermon. But it will give you an idea of what's going on here because this passage, this portion of the thousand years has divided churches. It has divided theologians. And, and quite honestly, it is seen in, in three major different camps. But as we read it, it literally says a thousand years. And this thousand year period is known as a millennium. And throughout church history, there have been many different ways to understand 
this millennium or this thousand years. And I put a graph up there. <clears throat> the first one is called premillennialism. Can you say premillennialism? Good. I knew you could. Now you learned a big church word. All right. But in all seriousness, for the, the first 300 years of the church, it was the belief that the thousand year reign was just that. The great tribulation would happen. Jesus Christ would return and reign for a thousand years. In other words, the tribulation and Jesus would come back pre or before the thousand years and usher them in. That's why you get pre-millennialism. But then after that 300 years, there was a change. There was a teacher named Tychonius who proposed that the millennium was not literal, but a spiritual representation that believes that we are actually in the midst of the thousand years right now. In other words, the reign of Jesus, Jesus is running the world right now. Well, my friends, let me tell you what. Look around. Does it look like Jesus is running the world? Don't get me wrong. Jesus is on his throne. Jesus is in control. But ruling the nations, ruling what our government does, ruling the way people work, ruling everything is broken. But they believe that, that during, we are in this thousand years and that Jesus is among us. In other words, there's, there's no literal thousand years. That's where they get the term, ah, millennialism. There is no doubt that Christ rules, for he is God. But yet, this does not mean he is ruling over the kingdom. I was watching a, a YouTube video the other day. This is totally random. Uh, but there was a show called Lucky Dog. You ever seen that? Where Brandon McMillan was training dogs. And, and all of a sudden, he uh, he's no longer on that show. He's doing a YouTube channel. And not a plug, I'm just saying. Uh, and so, anyway, there was these two dogs. They were greeting each other, and they started to get aggressive. And he said to the, the owner of the dog, don't worry, it's usually best in fights to kind of referee it and let them work it out. And when I heard that, I thought, that's kind of like what they're saying here. They're saying that, that Jesus is in control, but he's just kind of letting us work it out. Does that sound like that Jesus is ruling this earth? No, he is in control, but he is letting us run it into the ground. Postmillennialism grew out of that amillennialism, which says that the millennium will happen in this age before Jesus' return. In other words, the church will usher in this thousand years. In other words, the church will be the ones to turn everything around, and then Jesus Christ will come back. If that would be the case, why are so many churches struggling? You can't blame it on COVID, because they were struggling way before COVID ever hit. You are here today. God has blessed you, I hope, and He is giving you the, the, the feeding and, and the nourishment and the challenge that you need to attend church and to become a better believer and be the church outside of these walls. But there are many in this world today that do not value this. So let's look at some biblical proof of premillennialism. In other words, the Bible is as it says. We have the Great Tribulation. Jesus comes back and he reigns for a thousand years. Number one, 
Let me tell you what. Jesus' reign on the earth will be a literal reign. He will be here in form, reigning in the world and ruling the world. We know this because the Scripture says so. Did you know that there are over 400 verses in more than 20 different passages in the Old Testament that deal with this time when Jesus Christ will rule and reign personally over planet Earth. Zechariah says Christ's feet will actually touch the Mount of Olives prior to the establishment of his kingdom. So the same mountain where he delivered the Sermon on the Mount will be the mountain where he physically returns. During the kingdom, the Messiah will execute justice and judgment on the earth. The kingdom is described as being under heaven. The prophets foretold of dramatic earthly changes during the kingdom. So the chronological order of events in Revelation indicate that the existence of an earthly kingdom prior to the conclusion of the world. So the question is, why does Jesus and his followers even need to reign for a thousand years? Why? I mean, we have it, we have it good enough already with all of our politicians and governments, right? No, we don't. And the thing is, is that Jesus came to reign on this earth, but we killed him. They yelled, we have no king but Caesar. They wanted nothing to do with Jesus or his reign. But now, during this thousand year reign, Jesus will be on this earth and running it like it should run. And we as believers who have gone up and been called up to heaven will be down here and we will be helping him run it. We will be in the same bodies that Jesus had when he came back. If you remember the stories, he would walk through walls, but yet... He, or he could walk through doors without them being open, but yet he could also eat a breakfast. He could touch them and also at the same time be anywhere at any moment. I don't know how that's going to work out, but I think it's going to be pretty cool. Because we're going to be the ones with these resurrected bodies while everybody else that is still living either for the Lord or still rejecting the Lord will be in their earthly bodies. Yes, that's right. During this thousand-year reign, it's not going to be a thousand-year reign church service. There will still be people that will be so hard that they will still reject Jesus and live for themselves. When it says that there will be a second death, the first death—first, get my tongue tied—the first death applies to those who have been raptured at the beginning of Revelation that receive their eternal bodies. The second death refers to those who became believers during this thousand-year reign and have not received their eternal bodies yet until that time is over. So, that's the thousand years. Now we go into verses 7 through 10. The defeat of Satan. It's over. It's finished. It says, when the thousand years came to an end, Satan will be let out of his prison. When I think about that, I think about when I used to have a dog when it would get out and it, it would get out of the gate and it would just run. I mean, you, you, y'all ever had a dog get out of the gate and they think that they are in high cotton? Y'all know they'll ever come back. And that's what Satan's gonna do. He's gonna get released and he is going to run wild. It says in verse 8, he will go out to deceive the nations called Gog and Magog in every corner of the earth. And he will gather them together for battle, a mighty army as numberless as the sand along the seashore. 
And I saw them as they went up to the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people and the beloved city, which is Jerusalem. But (laughs) let me just stop here for a second. So I want you to get the picture. Satan is let loose and he grabs every piece of military equipment, every soldier, every man, woman and child that is opposed to God. He gets nations, China, uh, Japan and Russia and all of these folks that that are these world powers, America, all these world powers. And they're going to try to take on God and his army. They're going to attack Jerusalem. Does that sound very far fetched when you hear our news today? The way, look, you may not know a lot about biblical prophecy. I mean, I'm not the world's authority on biblical prophecy, but I do know this. When you hear the news and when you read the news and you see what's going on, you key in to what's happening to Israel. Because Israel is the linchpin. Israel is the key. Because Israel is still God's chosen people. So anyway, you see this big fight. It's kind of like, I remember back in middle school, is that if you heard there was going to be a fight, uh, ooh, there's going to be a fight, everybody would run there to be this huge crowd of people to watch two guys push each other. But that's basically what's going to be. There's going to be a fight. We're going to take on God. And all these nations are going to be so proud of their, their bombs of all bombs and, and their nuclears and their, their, their biological warfare. They're going to come with guns blazing. And I love this. God has been so patient. And then you read the next sentence in verse 9, right before verse 10. They are so amped up. They are so ready to take on God and But fire from heaven came down on the attacking armies and consumed them. (laughs) It's almost like when you step on a hill of fire ants. This last hurrah that Satan gets, he has whipped up everybody into a frenzy. And then God just goes, and it's over. That's it. Done. God's judgment has been delivered. So when you see how easy it is for God to just wipe all of this out, why has God given us time after time after time to turn to Him? Because He is a patient God, and His desire is is that no one would perish, and He is going to give everybody a chance to repent and come to Him. But when it's over, it's over. It says in verse 10, Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, And this is key, joining the beast and the false prophet. If you weren't here when we covered those, the beast was the Antichrist, and the false prophet is, well, the false prophet. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Theologically, forever and ever means forever and ever. Satan's last rally serves as a harvesting for all those who followed him to be destroyed. Yes, my friends, Satan is unleashed from the bottomless pit. And this is his last stand. You see, when I read this, I thought, who in the world is Gog and Magog? Well, these are prophetic enemies of Israel that's found in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. So it seems that John, when he writes this, he is borrowing that term as a symbol for those forces that will be fighting in the final battle at the end of the thousand-year reign. And fire from heaven? Is that such a long shot? 
Not at all, because if you go back to 1 Kings chapter 18, you'll see where Elijah called fire from heaven, and it consumed that altar. This is no great battle. This is Satan's last stand, and this is God's last hurrah. God simply crushes evil with fire from heaven. At this point, sin's presence and hold on this earth will be no more. No more sin. No more death. Can you imagine that? No more cancer. No more funerals. No more wars. No more heartache. Because sin is gone and done away with. And just one other thing I want to say about verse 10. When it says that Satan joins the, the beast or the Antichrist and the false prophet, what that means is, if you didn't catch that, because there are some people out here that will hear preachers and people say, well, I don't believe in hell. Well, if you don't believe in hell, that's fine for you not to believe in it. But I do know this. <clears throat> the scripture says here that the beast and the false prophet were in the burning lake of sulfur, which is hell. And then it says Satan was cast into that same lake, which means the beast and the false prophet had already been there for a thousand years. Do you catch that? So my friends, let me tell you how this works out. Hell was created for Satan and his followers, not for those he created Regardless of what some doctrines say, God did not create you for hell, my friend. God created you because he loved you and he wanted to have a relationship with you. But because of sin and people chose to reject God and they followed Satan and they followed their own selfish ways. The reason they go to the burning lake of sulfur and fire is because they followed the wrong horse. They made the wrong decisions. God is a God of love. God does not send people to hell. Their poor choices send themselves to hell because God gives you an option not to go there if you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. So is there really eternal punishment? It says in the, the second half of verse 10 that there, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. My friend, when eternity is over, and we receive our eternal heavenly bodies. Woo, I cannot wait to get that heavenly body. Those that rejected God will also get eternal bodies. Our bodies, those of us that are believers in Christ, will receive bodies that will be made for heaven for an eternity. And for those that rejected God, they will get their eternal bodies, bodies that are built to endure torture forever. Your body will be designed to feel pain and torture for the rest of eternity. Is that what you want? Is that what you want from your families? Is that what you want for the people that are walking on our streets? Is that what you want for the people that are rejecting God? Is that what you want for the people that you hate? It better not be. Because we're supposed to love God and love others. If that truly disturbs you, number one, you're going to get right with God. And number two, you're going to share your faith so that others may get right with him as well. Because this is not a fairy tale. This is not, and they lived it happily ever after. This is what happens. And hey, some of you might be out there and say, well, I don't believe that Bible stuff. I believe that, that in relativism, that if you believe in Buddha, you believe in, 
and Allah, you believe in all of these other people, you'll, you'll get what you believe in. Go ahead, my friend. Bank on that. But I'll tell you what. If I'm right about this, whoo, what a day that'll be. But if I'm wrong, I haven't missed a beat. Because my, my life with Christ has been so much better than when I tried to live it on my own. The last passage we see is verses 11 through 15. We see the final judgment. I think of that Europe song, The Final Countdown. Two of you know what I'm talking about. Verses 11 through 15. And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead. And all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death, and anyone whose name is not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire." This is not about your feelings. This is not about your hashtags you believe in. This is not about your tweets or your Facebook page or what you think. It's not in the book of opinions in the Bible because the book doesn't have a book of opinions. The truth, black and white answer is, if your name is in the book of life, you will be in heaven. If it is not there, you do not have reservations. You do not go to the front of the line. You do not pass go. You do not collect $200. Everyone does not get a trophy. You either go to heaven because your name is in the book of life, or you go to hell because it is not. Not my words. God's word. The great white throne judgment. There will be no place to hide, my friend. All will be judged. And Jesus is the judge. We know that because of John chapter 5. In the book of life, it contains the names of those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ to save them from their sins. But do not, do not confuse this judgment with the judgment seat of Christ that we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Because, you know, a lot of us as believers, we think, <laughs> great white throne judgment, I'm good. I got Jesus, I'm going to go to the front of the line, I, I am good. But still, at the judgment seat of Christ, in 2 Corinthians 5, 10, Jesus is going to look at how you handled the gifts he gave you. Jesus is going to look at, hey, I gave you all of this. I gave you all of this opportunity. What did you do with it? My friends, I think it's going to be like we're going to be sitting there and we're going to be naked and nothing between us and the Lord except these huge screens. They're going to show where we obeyed God and where we disobeyed God. And we're going to be judged for that. I'm not saying you're going to miss heaven, but I'm just saying disobedience here today among Christians will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. And then we see the lake of fire, a literal place called hell, a place made for everything wicked. Isn't it amazing here? Let me go ahead and tell you, God's word does not do gray. John is not writing in gray here. It's black and white. John does not give any gray. Either your name is in the book of life or it isn't. 
There is no work or act that you can complete that will take the place of accepting Jesus to forgive you of your sins. You can be the best person in the world. You can save a dog from getting hit. You can save a person from getting shot. You can find the cure for cancer. You can do all of these great things in the world. But if you don't have Jesus, it's not enough. Your name will not be in the Lamb's Book of Life. And you will die eternal, separated from God in hell. Again, not my words, but John's words. And you say, well, that's not very loving, preacher. That's not woke, preacher. Let me tell you this. I love each and every one of you in here. And anybody watching this video. I love every one of you as much as the Lord could get me to love you. And so is love acting like that this is not what it says? Or is love like you're driving down the road and there's a bridge out and you blast through the sign and nobody tells you that it's really out? I preach this. Because God laid it on my heart. I preach this because it is in God's word. And I preach this because it is the truth of God. And I can stand on that. So if you get mad about this, if you get offended by this, I'm telling you, it's not me you have the problem with. It's a warning. It's a love. When when we pull up to a house that is on fire and we tell people to get out, it's not because we're trying to be closed-minded and tell them, you know, that, that they need to stay with their stuff and we don't agree with their stuff. No, it's not that. We want them to get out because we want them to be safe. I want you today to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when you take your last breath here, that your reservation is in heaven, that your name is in the Lamb's book of life. How do you get in that book? You get in that book by saying, Jesus, I am a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life and help me to live for you from this point forward and then do it because in conclusion i would say your choices today will affect your eternity your choices today will affect your eternity there are people in this world that are crying out to be saved from the deception of sin and as believers it is more important today than ever to get the message of the gospel to those who are hurting. But one day, God's truth will be revealed. One day, Satan will be bound. And it's hard to imagine a world not swayed by evil, but it will happen. God's word is true. And ultimately, all he said will come true. So, my question to you is, will this truth draw you closer to God or push you further away from him? At this point in Revelation, the rebellion of sin is over and the world will be judged. Where will your name be? We, as we finish out Revelation in the next few Sundays, we're going to see the beauties of heaven. And my friend, I don't want to see you miss it because you were deceived or selfish and decided you could live your life better on your own than with Jesus in control of your life. Do you not think that for many believers, if living for Jesus was not what it was cracked up to be, we wouldn't turn around and go the other way? Why do people who believe in Jesus die for their faith? Why do people in Jesus serve and give up things that other people don't? It's because it's worth it. It's because it's worth it. 
I have never heard a family member say to me, boy, we spent too much time in church, and I'm really, I really hate that, that my child was exposed to all that church and all those sermons, and I really hate that they're still going to church these days. My friends, it's a real choice. Many of you in here today and many of you watching this video have made that choice. But I don't want you to sit back in your recliner or in your pew and say, my name's in the book of life. I'm good. If you do not have a compassion and a desire to share that with others, then you're still being selfish. You may be here today and you say, I don't know where my name is written. If you want to know today beyond a shadow of a doubt, that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. During the invitation, would you please come forward? I will talk with you. We will make sure that before you walk out these doors, that your faith is secured. If you are a believer and you feel like that you have wavered a little bit, you can come to the altar, you can pray with me, you can pray right where you're at. But make this the day where you realize this is not a game. There's not going to be a do-over. The book of Revelation is true. We may not understand fully everything that's in it, but we do understand that our hearts need to be right with him. Would you please stand as we have our invitation?